Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Morning. Uh, you know, if you're if you're newer with us, we've been doing a sermon series uh, this season uh, that we've called "Jesus Changes Everything," uh, and it's been a study of our mission and values as a church. And we're just wrapping up uh, the first part of that series where we've covered our church's mission statement. Uh, right, that we exist to see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. And so we're turning a corner today to begin talking about our values, grace reconciliation, joy, and transformation. You know, really, you could say that we as a church only have one core value, right? Our, if, you were to, if you were to sum it down to one core value, our core value is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Our core value is what God has done and is doing for us through Jesus, for us in our world. And our values are what we believe that gospel looks like when it's received and lived out in a community, It looks like a community that treasures and prioritizes grace. It looks like a community that's committed, as Paul says, to a ministry of reconciliation. It looks like a community that's marked by joyful worship. And it looks like a community that's bent on transformation, our own transformation into the image of Jesus, and the transformation of our city, nation, and world under his kingdom. And so this morning we're talking about this Precious, precious value in the life of our church, grace. Here's the way that our website uh, puts it. Grace, Jesus is the friend of sinners. That is really good news for people like us. And we want to love our neighbors so that it becomes good news for them too. Grace. You know, one of our deepest beliefs and one of our deepest longings as a church always, ever since we we started this thing, was that we would be a church culture marked by grace, right? That grace would not only be the message of our preaching, that grace would not only be the content of our faith, what we believe in our minds, but that that grace-filled preaching and theology would get worked out in a grace-saturated culture, right? That it wouldn't just be a message of grace, but a culture of grace, relationships shaped and formed by grace. And so we talk about grace a lot around here. One of the favorite ways that we talk about Jesus is Jesus as friend of sinners, right? That's one of those things uh, that was uh, used by the Pharisees and teachers of the law to try to tar and feather Jesus. They said he can't be taken that seriously because look who he hangs out with. He hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors. He hangs out with notorious sinners, And we want to be the kind of church where where we say that's good news, right? Where it's good news for us that Jesus hangs out with all the worst kinds of people because we recognize that that's us, right? That we're people who need Jesus, that it's good news for us that Jesus, as he said, right, a doctor comes not for the healthy but for the sick, right? right. Right? So if you think you're healthy, you have no need of a doctor, But if you know yourself to be sick, then you desperately want care. You desperately want the best doctor you can find. 
And so we want to be the kind of church where we say, you know what, we are sin sick. And we need a physician of our souls. We need somebody to cure our deepest ailment, to forgive our sin, to restore us to God, and to heal us. And so we're going to look at one of my favorite stories in the Gospels uh, today, a story that maybe more than any other to me shows this, this picture and posture of Jesus as the friend of sinners. We're going to look at, at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, this is Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned, uh, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. And it's given to us in love. You can be seated. The world that we live in uh, is a world that is starving for grace. It's a world that is desperate for grace. Last weekend, um, some of you will know, was the NFL draft, right? It was, a, it was a big day in the life of the hometown team where we, through our sheer incompetence, had earned the number one overall pick. <laughs> and so when you're a Jags fan, the draft is like your Super Bowl, right? It's, it's what you look forward to through all of the misery of the rest of the year. This is obviously a big deal for us. With the number one pick, we have the opportunity to draft the guy that everybody knew almost from the day he was in middle school, that this kid was destined to become the number one overall pick of the NFL draft. He's like a, a guy who dropped down from heaven to play quarterback in the NFL, Trevor Lawrence, right? Number one overall pick. I'm really nailing the Mother's Day sermon opener. Everybody wanted a Mother's Day NFL draft 
sermon for the ladies. But the draft, the draft as a whole is a pretty fascinating phenomenon. What it is, it's millions of fans, grown men mostly, around the world, around the country, uh, investing themselves deeply into analyzing every physical character and skill ability of a bunch of 21 and 22-year-old men. Right? These, these young men, these college uh, athletes are poked and prodded, they're measured, they're tried, they're tested. Every bit of game film that they've ever produced, every play of football they've played in high school or college is analyzed down to the most minute detail. So these world-class athletes, every single one of them, by the way, uh, who is just forever a better athlete than any of us, right? Uh, we sit down and we rank them, right? Well, this one's really quick, but he's a step slow. This one's uh, really, really big, but he's not quite as agile as you'd like him to be. This one can throw the ball a mile, but he's not very mobile. This one is very mobile, but he's not very accurate. And so we rank these guys according to their various merits, right? And so we, we have an order the, of, of the, the, the rank rounds one through seven and everything after uh, that we rank uh, these athletes. It's not uncommon if the fans who are there watching the draft think a player that the, their team drafts is drafted uh, too early. Let's say he's, he, they thought he was the 50th ranked player and their team drafts them at number 35. They boo and hiss and throw things. If their, player, if their team gets the right player, they cheer. It feels like a microcosm of our performance-oriented world. Right, where we live, we, all of us live with this sinking notion that somewhere there is a ranking and that we are being ranked from top to bottom based on our attributes. Right, we live with multiple of these rankings. Who are the most successful? Who are the most righteous? Who are the best looking? Who are the most fit? Who are the best parents? We live with this sneaking suspicion that we're constantly being judged, that we're constantly being placed on where we fall on the ladder or on the pecking order. You know, I'm not doing a specific Mother's Day sermon, but I don't know if there's any area of our life or any people in our life uh, who feel more of the pressure of the ranking system than moms, right? This constant pressure to wonder if you're doing it as well as the next mom, if you've done everything you could do, if, you're, uh, if your mom's uh, social media feed matches up to that of your friends, right? We live with this pressure of constantly worrying about where we rank next to our neighbors, our friends, and in the joy of our contemporary age, people we've never even met, uh, but have only seen their curated image uh, on the internet. In the incredible gift and disruption of the gospel, what Jesus does is he comes into our world. He comes into a world where we are obsessed with ranking one another, and he flips the order all around. He comes in, and all of a sudden he says, you know what, the people you think are first-round picks— the righteous, the Pharisees, the wealthy, and the good, they end up sliding down the draft board. And the people that you expect to go undrafted, the people that society wants nothing to do with, they find themselves shooting up and becoming Jesus' first choice. He takes that ranking that we have in our minds and he flips it upside down in a way that's absurd to us on the outside. Right In a way that for those of us who are confident that we were going to be the number one picks feels like terror. Right For people who've worked our whole lives to work our way up the ranking, 
To hear Jesus is drafting and his draft has nothing to do with your height, weight, or 40 time. But that he's looking at something else. Right? That's terrible news. But if you're someone who's been undrafted your whole life, if you're someone who knows the sting of being looked over and passed by by everyone that seems to matter in the world, and Jesus comes by and says, you, I want you. It's incredibly good news. So we're going to look at the grace of Jesus that disrupts our way of viewing the world and gives us new eyes to see. This passage uh, maybe illustrates this better than any other in the Gospels, and it's a, it's a passage that's preoccupied with seeing. Who sees what and who sees rightly? Who sees Jesus right as he really is? Who sees themselves rightly? Who, who has an accurate self-conception of who they really are? And grace gives us new eyes to see, to see ourselves, to see Jesus, and then ultimately to see what really matters in our lives. First, we have these new eyes to see ourselves. Here we have Jesus invited uh, to a dinner. And on first reading, that sounds nice enough, right? Hey, who doesn't want to be invited over for a dinner party? But uh, this is a tense scene. When Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's house, this is not a, a warm social occasion, right? This isn't a Pharisee just reaching out to Jesus because he wants a friend, right? This is a Pharisee, a group of Pharisees, inviting Jesus into their home to put him to the test. Similar to the lawyer uh, that we met last week in the parable of the Good Samaritan. These Pharisees uh, believed themselves to be the moral and religious police of ancient Israel. They were the ones who they saw it as their job to make sure that anybody who was teaching in Israel was teaching the Orthodox faith. That anyone who, who thought they were a rabbi was teaching the law and not altering it in some way to, to gather a hearing. And so in some ways, it's an honor that Jesus is invited as the guest of honor into a Pharisee's home. Right? It shows that he was a rabbi of enough note that they thought it worth uh, putting him in this position to hear what he taught. But it was also a trial. It was them standing in judgment of Jesus, wondering if what he taught and what he did measured up to the faith that they had inherited from their fathers. And so Jesus is there, surrounded in Simon the Pharisee's home, with these other Pharisees who are engaged in theological and ethical debate and dispute. It would have been uh, an entirely male crowd, right? This would have been a group of, uh, of established male religious leaders of Israel, the most respected people in the town. And so you can imagine the shock uh, that would have followed when this woman comes into this all-male space, and she doesn't come in quietly, right? She doesn't come in and say, well, you know what, I'm just going to... I'm going to hang back along the back wall and see what happens. She comes in a sniveling, wailing mess of a woman. Uh, she comes in, we're told, weeping from the time Jesus enters. And then instead of hanging out near the back, she snakes her way to the front. She gets right there with Jesus. And we're told that she wets his feet with her tears. And she takes an alabaster jar of ointment and she pours it out on his feet 
And then she lets her hair down and she begins to wash and to dry his feet with her tears. This is a scene of unbelievable intimacy, almost uncomfortably intimate. Right? One of those moments where you're like, hey, should I really be watching this? Should this be happening in front of a large group of people, somebody uh, this raw emotionally, this tender in their touch, this all out for everybody to see? And what's more, all we're told about this woman is that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, the author doesn't tell us uh, more than that, right? Some commentators have have spent some uh, not inconsiderable amount of time arguing about who this woman was. Uh, What we can virtually assume is that she was a woman who was, uh, we're told, was notorious for her sin, and that sin most likely was of a sexual nature. Uh, That either she was notoriously promiscuous and had gained a reputation around town for that reason, or that she was a prostitute. Uh, And that this ointment uh, around her neck, this piece of perfumed ointment, was uh, a tool of her trade. Either way, this is a woman who's given one label by the men in the room, sinner. She was known uh, not for her name. We don't know her name. She was known as sinner. We don't know about her relationships. We don't know about her hopes, her dreams. We don't know about her faithful. We don't know anything about her except for one word. A woman who was a sinner. Some of you know the pain of what it feels like to be identified with your sin and your sin only. Right? To feel like uh, your sin, your guilt has so become a part of who you are that you're sure that it's what everybody thinks as soon as they see you. That you are uh, not just a person who has made mistakes that you're not just a person who has uh, everything else about a fully rounded human life, but you've, like anyone, sinned, but to be someone for whom your sin has become a marker, that it's a marker that others place on you, that you're viewed with suspicion, it's a shame that you wear on yourself that you can't think your way out of, to feel what it's like, to feel like, to others, to yourself, and maybe even to God. Your sin is the most real thing about you. This is the way that sin works in our life, that it worms its way from an external thing, guilt, something we've done, into our souls so that it becomes something we can't imagine being separated from. That it's just who we are, that we are the worst things we've done, the worst places we've been, the worst thoughts we've harbored. I'm reminded of, uh, you know, maybe one of the most famous depictions of this in American literature is uh, in the novel The Scarlet Letter uh, by Nathaniel Hawthorne, where Hester Prynne uh, is convicted by her religious community of adultery and made to wear a scarlet letter, uh, an A for adulteress, that she has to wear on herself and never take away. She can cover it, she can try, but it sits there on her until it almost becomes a part of her. In one scene, the townswomen uh, who are sitting around and gossiping about Hester say, let her cover the mark as she will, but the pang of it will always be in her heart. And some of us know what that feels like, to feel like the mark is on our hearts. And so Simon, in the midst of this woman's just unadulterated expression of love and adoration and joy, at the feet of Jesus, 
right? We, we don't know, we don't know what, what else had happened, right? Surely there's a backstory here, right? Surely this woman has met Jesus. She's at the minimum heard about Jesus, that there's someone here who, who loves to show mercy to women like you, right? There's someone here, a religious teacher, that, that loves to not, doesn't just have his eyes on using and consuming or mocking or judging, but is here to love and to forgive. Maybe she had just heard about him. Or maybe she had met him and been touched by his mercy, but something prompted this outpouring of adoration. And there in that moment, Simon says, you know what? If this man were really a prophet, if Jesus really is who he says he is and who we believe him to be, if he really was a prophet, he would know who this woman is. He would see this woman like we see her. He would know that she, who she is and that she is a sinner and by implication, he wouldn't want anything to do with her. Certainly, he would be aware of distancing himself from the scandal of this intimate expression of, of love and touching. If Jesus really knew, if Jesus really saw, right? If Jesus saw her like I see her, then he would respond appropriately. You know, as we said last week, when you find yourself in a place of judging Jesus, you know that you're in a bad place. Right? When you find yourself in a, in a place of judging whether or not Jesus matches up to your moral view of the universe, in judging whether or not he matches your standard, then you know that you're in a dangerous position. And it's in a position uh, that Jesus in the Gospels seems to always love uh, to take head on. I love this little detail in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. You might have noticed verse 39, Simon said to himself, if Jesus knew who this woman was, and then Jesus answered him. Right, so Simon's just thinking it to himself. And then Jesus says, hey, you know what? I got an answer for you. Right, this is Jesus as prophet. Right, this is the Jesus showing that he is the living word, the word that the book of Hebrews tells us is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, cutting right through the middle of us. This is Jesus cutting right through Simon's heart, saying, look, before you even say it, before you show it, before you name it, I know what's inside of you. Right? You're questioning whether or not I see this woman as she really is. Let me tell you how I see you, Simon. Let me show you that I see you as you really are in the midst of this. You see, Jesus in this room is the one who sees it rightly. Jesus sees the woman as she really is, sees through the label of sinner, sees through the guilt and the shame and the reputation, and sees to her heart's expression of love and worship. And he sees Simon as he really is, wrapped up in judgment and pride, arrogance and condemnation. He sees him, and he calls him out. You know, one of the consistent assumptions of the Bible is the, about human beings is that we are often blind to the most important realities about ourselves. Right? That's one of the Bible's assumptions about human nature, is that we are often blind to the things that matter most about ourselves and about our world. Right? We think we see, but really we're blind. Right? The way that Paul tells it in 1 Corinthians, it's like we have a veil over our eyes. 
that keep us from seeing God and ourselves and the world as we really ought to. Right, that we think we have sight, but really we are blind. We think we see rightly, but we see only dimly. And so Simon is confident that he, among all the people there, sees what's really going on. And yet Jesus shows that he's the one who sees us. And in his seeing, he reveals us. And he reveals our sin. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. I've used it before. Lewis writes, The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. At all, uh, all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and, back, and backbiting, the pleasures of power and of hatred. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. I love that last little bit. What Lewis is saying is, look, there's sins that everybody in the world recognizes as sinful, right? Sins that, that you wear like clothes on the outside and everybody can see them. And then there's sins that nobody knows, sins that nobody sees, addictions that we manage to hide. You know, there's some addictions that actually, instead of ending up ruining your life, there's some addictions that actually you get ahead in your life if you have them, right? Addictions like greed and pride, workaholism. Some of those things that we can, we can be very, very successful outwardly and yet inwardly live in shackles. And Lewis is saying the most dangerous sins of all are the cold indifference, the self-righteousness that we hold in our hearts, that we can hold our whole lives and maybe never come to a place of real bankruptcy and never, never come to a place where we really see and acknowledge our need. And so Jesus tells a story as he often does, to further expose this situation. He says, look, there's a moneylender, so there's a banker. And he has two men that owe him money. One of them uh, owes him, we're told, 500 denarii and the other 50. Uh, we, we know that this is uh, roughly to say uh, that one man owes him, uh, let me see, I've got these numbers uh, here. Um, one owes him about two months' worth of wages, and the other about two years' worth of wages. So just do the math, figure out what you make in two years and what you make in two months, and that's what these two people owed to this moneylender. And the moneylender, the banker, says, brings both of them together, and he cancels the debt of both of them. And so Jesus asks, which of these two men do you think will love the banker more? And Simon rightly says, the one who had the larger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, the one who is forgiven much loves much. You know, this is a revealing story. The point isn't of this story. The point isn't that some people only need to be forgiven a little bit, right? That's not the point. The point isn't that there's big sinners and little sinners. There's people who need big grace and there's people who just need a little bit of grace. That's not the point. The point, of course, is that we all owe a massive debt, an unpayable debt to God. And the gap has to do entirely with whether or not you are aware of the gap, whether or not you're aware of the debt that you owe to God. Some people live with only a little bit of awareness of the, of the debt, right? You know what? I'm basically a good person who's just made some mistakes. 
And so the only grace that I need is a little bit of a bump, right? Look, I'm not, I'm not asking, you know, for a whole bunch of extra credit. I'm not looking for a massive debt forgiveness. If you just forgive me my sins and then get me up to zero, then I'll be able to move on with my life. And God, I promise I'll do my best, right? Little sin. But then there's, there's others who recognize that we are, we are big sinners who are hopeless without the forgiveness of God. That we've racked up a debt. We've maxed out every moral credit card we had. We've gotten into a, a debt that we will never be able to repay. And apart from God's freely given grace, we're without hope. And Jesus is saying, look, there's not two types of sinners. There's one type of sinner. There's only sinners with this, ama- this um, a huge debt owed to God. The only question is whether or not you're aware of it. Whether you're aware of yourself is an enormous debtor to God's mercy. The invitation is to see the size of our debt. But if that's all that it is, then we're hopeless, right? If this is just a parable that's shown to, to tell you what an awful sinner you are, then it's without point. But the point of the story is to reveal our sin, to reveal our debt, in order to reveal God's grace, right? In order to, to, to realize that the, the bigger your debt, the more gracious your God. Right? The more accurate your view of your sin, the more accurate your view of your Savior will be. Because the story also reveals something about the Master. It reveals something about Jesus to us. That He stands ready to forgive massive debt. He stands ready to forgive massive sin. You know, debt is something that can never just be purely forgiven. Right? Debt has to be paid. Right? Debt uh, is not one of those things. Let's say you have a neighbor who one day drives his car into your fence and crumples it completely. Right? You might say to your neighbor, you know what? It's okay. I forgive you. I forgive you for, for running over my fence. What a loving and kind neighbor you are. But somebody still has to fix the fence. Right, you can run over the fence, but somebody's going to have to pay to fix it unless you're going to live with a, a run-over fence. Yeah. So either you say, I forgive you, but yeah, look. I mean, forgiveness is one thing, but I am going to need, I am going to need you to fix the, the fence. And if you don't, you're going to be hearing from my lawyer. Yeah. Right? Or you say, I forgive you, and I'm going to pay for the fixing of the fence. But somebody's got to pay. And the gospel tells us that our debt of sin is such that somebody has to pay it. Right? It's not the kind of debt that God can just sweep under the rug. He can't just say, well, you know what? It wasn't such a big deal after all. You know what? Sin is not all that big a deal. No, he's an eternally holy and righteous God. Sin creates a real debt that really needs to be paid. And what Jesus is showing us here is that he is the one who pays it. Right? That he on the cross doesn't just forgive our sins, he pays our debt. He gives what we owe to God, a righteous, holy, and perfect life, so that we, notorious sinners, can receive the inheritance that He deserves. The gospel isn't just that Jesus pays pays off our debts and leaves us at break-even. It's that He pays off our debt and gives us His inheritance. All that the Father, all that He has at the Father's right hand, all of the Father's love and righteousness and delight, He gives to us. 
notorious big sinners. And so Simon eventually begrudgingly admits Jesus' point. Who loves more? The one who's been forgiven much. And then Jesus reveals and he gives us the eyes to see what really matters most about our lives. What does he say? He says, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. Right? The point of our lives, the point of our lives in Christ is measured by love. Right? We saw last week, what does God require of us? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The point of the Christian life, the point of our life as disciples of Jesus is to grow in love. Right? It's to become people who, who love God with all that we have, who love our neighbors as ourselves, even to the point of sacrifice. And if we want to grow in love, Jesus is showing us the way. Right? You can't just learn your way to love. You can't, uh, you know, growing in love, yeah, there's a part of the Christian life that's about growing in our knowledge, our knowledge of God and His Word and ourselves. But ultimately what matters is not our growth in knowledge, except if that knowledge fuels our growth in love that we become more loving people. And Jesus says the only way that you grow in love is to recognize how loved you are. It's to recognize the depth of your debt that's been paid. It's to feel that movement of the soul that recognizes you've been loved much in spite of yourself and then moves out in love for God and for others. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.6, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Only faith expressing itself in love. Right? Neither circumcision, so not law-keeping, not Simon-like righteous law-keeping, nor uncircumcision, not, not license, not wayward living, uh, notorious sinning like the woman. Right? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither law-keeping nor, nor law-breaking amounts for anything. What counts is faith expressing itself in love. A heart that's moved to love God and to obey Him out of that love. A heart that's moved to love our neighbors as ourselves. So in closing, what does it mean for us to be a church that truly values grace? What does it mean for us to be a church that not just has, a God, has grace-centered theology, but grace-centered living? among ourselves. Well, first, it means that we are a church for all kinds of sinners, right? We are a church that wants to be a church where, where sinners like this woman and sinners like Simon can come together to realize our sin, to realize that whether or not you're the kind of sinner uh, that struggles even to darken the door of a church because your feeling of not belonging, of guilt and of shame is so heavy that you can't imagine belonging in a church where you feel instantly the welcome and embrace of Jesus, that you are wanted and delighted in here, that you belong here as much as anybody can belong anywhere, and a place where if you've been, in, if you've been a member of churches for decades, you can discover again, we hope the depth of your sin, right? We hope that you'll be challenged to look in the mirror and to see sin, and then to look not just in the mirror to see your sin, but to look to the cross, and where together we can give our lives in an outpouring of love and worship to Jesus. Where our worship is marked like this woman's worship at the feet of Jesus. Where we're pouring ourselves out to him in gratitude and in love. 
For some of, that, for some of us, uh, worship like this woman's uh, feels natural and easy, right? We think, oh, expressive worship. Maybe with tears, maybe with laughter, maybe with dancing, maybe with joy, maybe with sorrow. Yeah, that's what we want. For others of us, we go, hey, listen, I came to church, I came to worship, I didn't sign up for all that. But we want to be a place where however you're wired, however you express yourself to God in worship, that we do so as sinners who are in living daily amazement at God's grace and His mercy. So we want to be a church for all kinds of sinners. We want to be the kind of church where Simon and the woman eventually become friends. Right? Listen, think about that. Right? Think about it. If, if these two people are in church together, if they're not just at this dinner party and then going separate ways, if they both become followers of Jesus, if Simon comes to believe what Jesus says about him, and this woman comes to, mercy, you know, comes to delight in the mercy of Jesus, eventually these two people might find themselves in a small group together. Right? Or eventually these two people might find themselves on a, uh, on a committee of a church, or they might find themselves sitting around table in one another's homes with their wildly different backgrounds, with their different paths of coming to Jesus, and each with something to offer one another. Right? Each with a story to tell for one another, each having gained a glimpse of the mercy of Jesus that the other may not see ever apart from an unlikely friendship. And so we want to be the kind of church where Simon and this woman are forced to deal with each other eventually, right? Where eventually they're forced to learn from one another, where they become, as we say, uncommon family with one another, where they come to see one another as Jesus sees them, where they come to see one another's, not only their guilt, but also their incredible dignity and giftedness. And then finally, we want to be a church where we extend one another grace in a graceless world. I mentioned at the beginning that our church, our, our, our world is starved for grace. You know, I think we, we've talked a lot about how our, our world and our nation is, is rapidly becoming, uh, moving along this trajectory that we've been on in, for some time of becoming a post-Christian nation, uh, right? Where, where culturally we feel uh, what it feels like when a society leaves uh, God out of their equation collectively. And here's what, what most sociologists and what most uh, scholars of religion have believed would happen as a culture leaves religion behind. What most people believed would happen was that we would become a culture marked by license. So a culture where sin, where, where it was no holds barred, sin as you want, there is no law. And in some ways, we've seen that happen. Right? In some ways, we've seen uh, the fruit of that in our culture. But I think far from all becoming licentious is that abandoning Jesus has largely led to a new legalism, right? It hasn't led to everybody just doing whatever they want in a live and let live, who am I to judge posture. It's led to all of us adopting our own legalisms, right? Our own ways, our own internal laws and ways of measuring who are the good people and who are the bad people, who are the smart people and who are the dumb people, who are the righteous people who are the unrighteous people? What are the, the, the loving actions? What are the hate-filled actions? And so instead of everybody throwing law out and saying, well, you just do whatever you want, we each build our own little laws. And we get into enclaves of other people that hold to our little laws. And then we walk around angry all the time at people who don't live according to our laws. The right walks around angry at the left. The left walks around angry at the right. Far from becoming uh, just 
willy-nilly forgiving towards one another. We've become unbelievably harsh towards one another. So it's actually the worst of both worlds. It's law without any prospect of forgiveness. It's law without any way towards atonement, where all we can ever do is fail one another. We're all, like, it's, it's taking a test where all of your neighbors are grading you and there are no right answers. And so, in contrast to that, the church should be a place where we bend over backwards to pour grace on one another. Where we bend over backwards to, to say, you know what? We, we are not going to be little legalists against one another. I'm not going to walk around constantly evaluating you against whatever blog I read this week. Whatever my, I'm going to go above and beyond to desire to listen to you, to understand you, to cover over the sins in your life. Listen, we're all going to sin against one another. We're all going to lose our tempers with one another. We're all going to judge one another. Like this, this is what it means to be sinners. But to say, hey, as a church, we are not going to let sin and judgment have the last word. We are going to be a community of grace. We're going to look over things that happen in worship services and just uh, forgive and move on. (laughs) Friends, let's pray that Jesus would make us into a family of grace. Lord Jesus, we do come to you for grace. We all need it. Lord, we all need your mercy. Um, We all know what it feels, uh, feels like to live under judgment. We know what it feels like to live under judgment because of our sin. We know what it feels like to, to feel judged by our neighbors and our family. Lord, we all know what judgment feels like, and we've had far too much of it in our lives. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would work your grace into our hearts. Lord, that you would help us to recognize the massive debt which we have been forgiven, and that out of that experience of forgiveness, you would help us to move out in love towards one another, towards our neighbors, and towards the world. Lord, those who have been forgiven much love much. Help us every day, every day, to live with an awareness of how much we've been forgiven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.